Okay, we left off at verse 12 last week, and uh, Paul has said in chapter 15, the big chapter on resurrection, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the big question. Someone's been saying there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead here in Corinth. And so he says, if we have been preaching that Christ is resurrected, how are some of you saying he isn't? And it launched us into doing a sort of general survey uh, through the Bible on resurrection. We covered probably 20 verses from the Old and New uh, Testament that talk about resurrection of the dead. And then returning to the topic at hand, some were trying to say, no, there's not a resurrection. And Paul, after asking how this was, adds, verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he, was ra- that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. They excuse me, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In this life only we have hope in Christ. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most miserable. Okay, so he goes through, let's jump back to verse 13. Paul begins to build his case for resurrection of believers then. He's established that Jesus resurrected. Uh, but this now is an argument to believers. And it's important to know that this is an argument he's giving to people who believe in Christ, right? And so he says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, as some of you are saying there in Corinth, then is Christ not risen? If there's no resurrection, Christ hasn't raised either. Now, if the whole subject of resurrection is impossible and absurd, he seems to say, then it must follow that Christ isn't risen either, since there were the same difficulties present in raising Jesus from the dead as there would be raising anybody else from the dead. He seems to be saying he was dead, he was buried in a tomb, uh, he had laid in the grave for three days, and his soul left the body, if there was such a soul, because the the uh, Sadducees didn't believe in a soul either. And his frame, uh, I mean, he's not saying this, but he seems to be implying his frame was cold as the clay and there was no blood circulating. There was no air coming into Jesus. Forget about it. He was dead, 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 dead. And since resurrection of all of us is based on the resurrection of him, and since the difficulty of raising him up to life in this case is as difficult as any other resurrection, then there is no resurrection at all, he seems to concur. And then it only makes sense that 
There's no resurrection of all. There's no resurrection of Christ and vice versa. No resurrection of Christ, no resurrection of all. This is his logic, right? Now, long story short, Paul states, if there's no resurrection, then Christ was not resurrected. Theologically, I totally get what he's saying. But philosophically, I don't get it at all. I don't understand his argument at all if you're looking at it from like just a rational mind. I mean, just because Christ was resurrected, what does that have to do with anything else? I mean, he was perfect. He's the son of God. He could have resurrected. Why the fact of no resurrection would Christ not be resurrected too? But in terms of theology, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to talk a little bit about why. So what Paul appears to be incorporating into his argument is that Christ, the innocent lamb, he's the Passover lamb. You remember that at, 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 at um, Exodus that Moses is told, take the blood of a lamb and put it on your doorpost and I will pass over your house. And those who are dead, of the, those who are of the firstborn will not be killed. I'll pass over them. And so when Christ day on the day of the Passover, Christ was the Passover lamb at that time so that God would pass over their house. So if he has done this for the sins of the world, uh, which allows for the general resurrection of him, and if there is no uh, resurrection at all as a result, then Paul is saying that Christ himself did not resurrection and resurrect, and that's theologically astute. It really is. It makes a lot of theological sense. So Paul shows them that the denial of the doctrine of resurrection in general, maintaining that the dead are not going to rise, leads us to the denial of Christ rising. They are one, they are inextricably linked together is the argument he's making. And then that will lead to the denial of Christianity altogether. And then ultimately the destruction of all hope of believers and then ultimately everybody uh, being lost forever and ever. So, and he'll get to that. So he's building a case and he adds at verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, I've established that if there's no resurrection, Christ didn't rise. And then at 14, he says, and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching apostles is vain and your faith is vain. So he is putting a lot on the resurrection of Christ. And I completely agree wholeheartedly with that idea. While the birth and life lived perfectly and the miracles of the Lord and his teachings are wonderful and worthy of talking about in and of themselves, you know, around the campfire and at the dinner table, uh, like we would talk about the teachings and philosophies of other great minds and leaders. This is how kind of the world has gone when it comes to Christ great philosopher. I love his teachings and really love what he represented. Hear it all the time. But um, the substance and point of everything is on his death and resurrection. And that is what the epistles of Paul go to make clear for believers. The gospels don't tell too much. I mean, he'll say, I'm the resurrection and the life, and it will give us a little clue but they don't really tell us too much about what it means. Paul and Peter and James and John, they go on and they explain the tie that Jesus' death and resurrection mean 
to the world. And that is why they are so significant to Christianity. So, Paul's was an apostolic witness of his resurrection. And there is a great reason for um, him having that focus. We've been talking a lot about it in Meet lately. And, And on the board, I've written two very important quotes. People ask me, What's your soteriology and my soteri- how are people saved? What is your view? You know, this, this group views that God would save us all, but he can't because of free will. This group uh, believes that God doesn't want to save us all and only saves a few. I am a total reconciliationist. I believe that God reconciled the whole world to himself through the death of his son. Catch the words, through the death of his son. Only the sins wiped out for the whole world, the whole world. And I based that on some scriptures. And here's two. Uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That word there in the Greek is cosmos. It's the entire world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's 2 Corinthians uh, 5.19. And then if you go over to Romans, it says, for if. When we were enemies, that means when we were still in sin, we were reconciled to God by the death, that's only the death of his son. That's why I'm a total reconciliationist. Sin's wiped out by his son. Look at much more being reconciled. Now he's talking to Christians here. We shall be saved by his life. And that means by his resurrected life. So there is the reconciliation that comes through his death, which we've talked about. But for Christians who believe on him, there is also the rising to life. And that is why the resurrection is so paramount in the life of Christians, is that Jesus didn't just die for sin. He then overcame sin and death and rose from the grave. So um, those two passages are really important in and through his death for the sins of the world, as what it says there in 2 Corinthians, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. And then by Christ's resurrection, where he rose up from that grave, which invites all in the world to also rise up to new life with Christ, all in the world to come up now, sin's been paid for, now walk and live as Christ, um, the full import of what Christ did in his death and his resurrection is known to us as believers, you see? So uh, I have made it clear of late that in his death, the entire world experiences its own death for its respective sins. The atheists across the way who denies any God whatsoever, sins have been reconciled by the shed blood of Christ when he died. That person, though he doesn't believe, remains dead in the grave with Christ, having paid for his sins. They're a blank slate. They're a branch in the vine that has no fruit. Maybe you could see it that way. Those who aren't his are branches in the vine that have yet to bear any fruit at all versus the Christian are the branches 
have risen to life. Now we apply the resurrection. And in that risen life are beginning to produce the fruit that comes through him to them in the living Christ. Paul in the epistles makes this clear, which is why there's such an emphasis on his resurrection uh, uh, as Christians. So, um, excuse the personal reference here. I'm going to cite something from, I do an e-journal, not e, but it's just my computer. And uh, I wrote, there's really no life, no real living without God in us, in my estimation. Uh, There's fun moments. There's experiences truly enjoyable and memorable. And life's a gift. But for me, I spent most of my young and early adult life wandering around in a daze unable to establish where the true values were. Where's the true living? I mean, and I write, I would concoct plans and work jobs and, and have schemes put into effect, but they were empty and void of true purpose when looking at the scheme of things. Looking at the grand scheme of things, beginning to end, eternality, the existence of the soul going on and on and on. What was these little things I was dabbling in, what were they going to mean in in terms of eternal significance? When Proverbs says that our lives are but breath on glass, vapor, it says, on glass. As soon as you put it on there, it disappears again, right? So what's the purpose and meaning of life? And and, uh, so I go on and, and just to summarize, looking back, you can see that Life is a gift for all. It has purpose for all. We do many things with our gifts and purpose. But if you don't have the thing that will go beyond, that will carry you through this life and the next, it can become rather tenuous. And that's not original to my thinking in my little online journal. I mean, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon had everything. He had everything imaginable. And he wrote... It's all vanity. It's all vexing. It's all vexation. You know, unless you've tapped into the spiritual that continues on, everything becomes a vexation. And I realize that this isn't really sound news for some people because they really enjoy their lives and they enjoy it here. And God has made it so that we should, right? But the scripture, if you're a Christian, you have to see there's more to it than just living for the now, right? So Paul has said plainly, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith is in vain. The faith that you have had. What was the purpose of preaching or having faith in someone or, or, or something if it can't provide abiding living benefits now and into the future, right? So uh, the afterlife status of an individual. Now, you have to believe there's an afterlife status or this is going to be meaningless to you. But if you think there's an afterlife status, then you have to weigh out what is going to be beneficial for me here, to my life here, which is a gift, which I have so many things going, and what will also carry over to existence there. If you just have something that helps you here, that's one thing. If you just have something that helps you there, supposedly, that's another. But you want the life here and there. And so uh, there is none. 
Paul is saying without the resurrection. There's nothing here. In fact, it's bad here if your hope is in Christ only here. And it's nothing there. So if we're going to preach a message, Paul says, that message, if that message is going to have any real merit, it must provide value here and there. And it has to be sustainable and understandable value as to why. That's what the epistles are writing about. He says, if it doesn't, then his preaching is in vain. It's a waste of time for us to do what we're doing. So he's hinging everything that they've spent their lives as apostles doing on the resurrection. He says, if it's not right, it's in vain. There, there are lots of things out there that are preached that offer you know, improvement and value to us right here and now. I mean, the spectrum is broad in our lives, um, especially on the superficial level. Uh, we read about people who have joined the military and it's given their life direction. For my dad, who's an atheist, uh, his, his change came when he joined the LA County Fire Department as a young man. He became a fireman and that gave him direction, something to live for. And he became accountable and he became responsible and all these things through his job. Those things happen. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's training and there's religious pursuits that do wonderful things here. The Mormons are the best at it, probably, in providing, you know, good vocational direction if you adhere to their stuff. And, uh, and uh, guys like Glenn Beck, you know, who was an alcoholic, he found the Mormon church and he stopped being an alcoholic here. And he loves the Mormon church because it helped him. It was his 12 step that gave him purpose and to know all that. So that's it. But if the principles taught in the thing, the military, the religion, the, the, the system, don't carry on there too, there's, there's a problem. You know, it's the preaching, Paul says, is in vain. So in his book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which I recommend highly, a guy named William James, who's the brother of the other James, uh, who's a famous writer, uh, he says most religions on earth from his research provide a rebirth experience most of them the people who get involved with them experience a change in their person where they feel born again and uh, i was surprised when i first read that and learned that and that, that's in islam and that's in eastern uh religions and that's in uh, christianity and so uh coming to a new life but you have to ask and this was a question that came to me as i read that even if in our religious expression here that allows for an earthly regeneration, you know, for us to come to new life here, does it carry over? Will it carry over? Does it have the basis to bring us over to continued life there? That is where the resurrection does it for us in Christ. That's where the relationship with Christ does it for us, is that his resurrection brings us to life here that continues on in him there. That's where it comes in and through him. All will be resurrected, but only some to life. And so, um, you know, you join religion or you join a, a military, you get a good job, you're looking for a change in yourself. You're wanting to improve, right? That's great. But you want that change in the Christian sense, from the Pauline sense, to be from being dead in the grave to rising up to new life in Christ, not just in a new occupation, a new religion, a new philosophy, in Christ. So 
Paul is suggesting it was in the actual death of Jesus Christ who took the actual literal sins of humanity upon himself. He died as humankind. I like to say it that way. He died as humankind, right? That allows for the total forgiveness of all sin by God, his Father. God, remember, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and down below reconciled to God by the death of his Son. That is where God was reconciled because in his Son all of us died for our sin. So, uh, the former person, having had their sins remitted completely, when you understand that, that's the difference between a works-based salvation and a grace-based salvation. When you know he paid for all the sin forever and ever and ever, that is a grace-based salvation. When you believe that he paid for sin, but you must do such and such and such and such, that's a works-based salvation, right? So when someone comes to understand that their sin has been completely remitted, past, present, future, by Christ, shed blood, no exception for anyone, for some that dawns on them and they say, wow, I, by the Spirit, become a new person in him, and then they begin to walk in Christ in his resurrection. So the former person discovers this metaphysical death in Christ, and then it is in the actual rising of him that the believers, placing their faith on him, now begin to live. That's the import of this actual tangible life that we have. And one that not only abides with us here and now, helping us get through this world, but also bear, carries with us there, then, right, into the eternities. That, something that militaries and religious reform cannot do. Hence the need to just preach Christ, you know? It's just, you know, your faith on him. So if you strip the res resurrection away from the preaching of Christ, both the preaching and the faith in him becomes vain. That's what he's saying. Uh, Paul simply says to the believers at Corinth that it's useless to even believe in Jesus if this is the case. If he didn't rise, forget about him. Forget about Jesus. He says, I get that. You can take him as a real good leader and a good model and as someone who's a great philosopher. And I know great minds have done that, Jefferson and others. But when you strip that resurrection away, you strip away the doctrine behind it. Um, so if and when anyone, and there's a number of them who claim to really love Jesus and his teachings, but who can't not accept or embrace his substitutionary death and resurrection, they're missing the truest and most important point of the faith. Now, I don't begrudge them. You don't want to believe in the resurrection? That's your, that's your priority. I'll love you the same. You're my brother. You're my sister. Whatever you want to do. But if, and if they say, well, do I need to? I would go back and say, need to? Well, let me explain to you why it's important, what, what it is about that that makes it true. So, Paul adds at verse 15, Yea, and we, found, we are found false witnesses of God, talking about the apostles, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. There's that theological uh, thing again. 
He didn't raise him up if the dead aren't going to rise, is Paul's thinking, that theological idea, right? So uh, this is important if we give it any thought. These men, from the apostles that Jesus called to Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, they loved God. They did not like lies, I don't think. Maybe Judas, I don't know. Maybe not. But they gave their lives for preaching the gospel, which is that he rose, that he was buried and rose again. That's the short stack gospel we talked about three weeks ago. They gave their life for that. Paul went around, apparently left a wife who left him because he became a Christian. He spent he gives innumerable sufferings he undertook. Ultimately, all were put to death but John. And they spent their life preaching to a crowd that we cannot understand, these Romans and these Gnostics and these, and these Jews, these Judaizers, to their own people that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they suffered like no other for it. Paul says, if he didn't rise, our witnesses are completely false. All that we're doing. And remember, back in part one of this, he said, you can go back and talk to the witnesses now. Most of them are still alive. Some of them have slept, but 500 of them saw them, and they're still walking around, right? One thing we have to admit here is the apostles, were their witness was heartfelt, okay? They believed it completely, okay? Um, there are theories out there that say, no, they were part of the con, and people liken, you know, the witnesses of the Golden Plates in the Book of Mormon to those witnesses being part of the con and the apostles being part of the con too. And people have said a lot of people have sacrificed their lives for something that is false. You see it all the time. Our Twin Towers aren't there anymore because some people sacrificed their lives for a premise that was false. So, but rarely, rarely does a person suffer and sacrifice and endure mistreatment and give up everything their life is about for something they know is a lie? For something that they know is a lie. The true believer might do it, but not knowing it's a lie, they believe it. So we have to then conclude that the apostles believed either the lie or they were witnesses of the truth. I don't believe they would go and know a lie and give their lives for it the way they did, if the record's correct, for a false witness of a resurrection. So I believe that they certainly thought that Christ had rose, risen, and that they thought that because they saw him, touched him, talked with him, learned of him, felt the wounds, ate with him, others saw him, etc., etc. But there, I just cannot buy that 12 men go out and sacrifice everything their life is about for a risen Lord that they all know is a con. That, that just, I mean, I just can't buy it, you know. And that's why the witnesses of other cons usually don't last. They all leave one way or another because they know it's a con and they're not gonna, they, they wake up one day and go, what am I doing, right? So... Uh, and a couple of them, you know, they watched his trial. They watched his beatings. They watched him be buried. They, they, they saw him after the beating, James and John, I mean, uh, John and Peter. And then the 500 witnesses. So uh, these guys love God. And their lives proved it. And they, their lives are historically supported 
by secular writers. So while zealous for the things of him, which, the, which can admittedly lend to being a, a zealot yourself. If you really believe something, you can be a zealot, and that something can be false. But uh, I don't know how they were tricked into believing the resurrection. You know, either he didn't die, like some say, and he went and hid, or something like that, and he came back, you know, all these things people suggest, or the record is true, and if the record's true that he died, and the record is true that the apostles actually believed that he resurrected, then I think it's really good reason to believe that he did. And if he did, then boy, do we have all the theological connections making sense that we get through the epistles and Hebrews and other places. At verse 16, Paul reiterates, probably because the principle is so important to his thinking, the point he's making. This is just a reiteration, 16 and 17. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. He's made this point twice. Okay? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. So now he's, taking, he's turning the heat up a little bit. Right? Speaking of Jesus, Paul wrote in Romans 4.25, He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you hear the distinction there? He was put to death for our sins, sins of the world, right behind me. He was put to death for that. Everybody blank slate. And raised for the believers, I'm going to change that, for believers' justification. Okay? Peter said in 1 Peter uh, 1.21, Through him you have confidence in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It's through him and that, what God did through him. The doctrine is this, God who is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son for our trespasses, and then those who believe that he rose, walk justified before God through his resurrection. Those who are resurrected into nakedness, as Paul describes, you have a resurrection of glorification in your body, or that's through believing that he was raised and you're justified, or you are resurrected into nakedness, do not look to that part of Christ's existence. They don't believe in that part of Christ's existence. And they're raised into what Jesus said was damnation, meaning that they are raised into nakedness instead of having the body clothed with glory, which we've talked about. So there's a one-two combination, his death alone paying for sin, but his resurrection and our belief and walking in it is what justifies us before God. Look at it this way, and this take is supported all through Scripture. Uh, there are numerous parables, there are numerous teachings that speak of God wanting fruit from those who are his. That is really how we're, got, how we're trying to see this. If you only die in your, and the sin is paid for, then you're the branch without fruit. You haven't come to life yet, right? Yielding no fruit, bearing before God neither goodness nor evil. Yeah, sin's wiped away, but nothing. You're a blank slate, and you're an empty branch. That is why the resurrection is based upon the lives lived, 
in this world as, as Christians. The lives lived are not to save us. The lives lived are not to get rid of sin. That all happened through his death. Okay? The lives lived are to produce the fruit. And upon that fruit, God will then give us the resurrected body that he desires. That he desires, right? So for this reason, we are justified before God through his resurrection, which of course means we rise from the grave. We don't dislay their sinless uh, or without sin, we rise from the grave. So where there are all, we're all substitutionarily dead, paid the price of sin, the wages of sin is death, through his death, we rise to righteousness. And for this reason, Paul emphatically tells us at verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sin. In other words, it was in the raising of Christ that the proof of sins had been remitted came true, right? Anyone can claim to be a Messiah, to be a prophet, a sent from God, a Messiah, that they have God in them or with them, anybody, and uh, they can even be put to death for that. You know, David Koresh was put to death. Um, What's his name? Raven, John, Jonestown, died, all giving prophecies about their death, right? Anyone can be put to death for the things they believe. Self-fulfilled prophecy, in fact. It's like part of what cults are built on, and that's how they keep, continue to thrive once the leader dies. Uh, but to rise from the dead once put to death, that's the proof that whatever had been taught before had veracity, and so, no resurrection, Paul says, then no pardoning of sin. In theory, this is true by way of theology, but it's also true in, in the sense that they would have no tangible reason to believe that their sins had been forgiven. None. You know, as the examples I just mentioned. And so, they would, you'd be dead in your sin. You would still be walking around because Jesus died, but he never rose. And you knew Jesus and you followed Jesus. You trusted us and he died, was put to death, but he never came back. So you'd be walking around dead in your sin. You wouldn't even know, right? At verse 18, he says, and they also which have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So he gives them another reason, meaning everybody we have known and loved who followed and trusted in Christ in his death and resurrection for sin and, and everything else, they're still dead, right? They've fallen asleep and they are perished. Now, um, the first point is to say that all who place their faith in Jesus, if there's no resurrection, are, their eternal safety is over with. We don't know what that means. And they have perished. Um, the whole system of salvation would be lost to everybody who has died that we know about if he didn't rise. So he's really throwing it down because it was all a con, right? And they are going to remain distanced from the presence of God. And Paul used the, uses the word in the King James perished. They are perished. I want to bring that word around to you again if you haven't, don't remember this. Prior to Christ, everybody who died was still alive, but in a different place. They were in Sheol, right? Had they perished in the sense that you think of perishing, what it means in scripture? No, they were still around, okay? So when you read perished in the King James, we read into it destroyed, annihilated, or are, uh, are just being wiped out. They've perished. That's how we use. What happened to everybody on the Titanic? Well, all but these certain souls perished, right? And we think that's what it means. Um, but 
those before Christ who died, they had not perished. The word perish needs to be understood from the Greek. And the term is apulami. And apulami does not mean to be, will be destroyed. It means that, apulami means lost. And it often, most frequently means lost temporarily. Don't, don't lose that. The same word is used when Jesus said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, the perish or perishing sheep of Israel. Were they gone? Were they destroyed? Were they forever missing from the society of humanity? No. No, they weren't. He came for the apulami, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Apulami does not mean destroyed. So, um, in Luke, it says, when he's talking about the shepherd who loses one sheep, he says, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That loss there is a pool of me. Now, everywhere in the King James where you read a pool of me, you're going to read destroyed. When you look at commentators who, who interpret scripture for us, they say if it's talking about uh, perishing at the end or going to uh, Hades, or any, and it says you will, uh, and it uses the word apulami, they will use destroyed, wiped out. Not true. Not true. Just lost. And in almost every case, temporarily lost. In uh, Luke chapter 15, when uh, Christ gives the parable of the lost coin, it's apulami. It's not lost. It's just, I mean, it's not uh, going to be destroyed forever. It is going to be found, actually. It's tarnished. It's it's hard to find, it's difficult, but it will be found. That principle goes in harmony with all of Scripture. The idea that there is a group that are going to be destroyed, even branches in John 15 that are cut off from the branch because they don't bear fruit and are taken by the angels and cast into the fire to be a pool of meat. They're lost, but they're not destroyed. That's, 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 that's really something. So when Jesus says in Matthew 10, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. That, that, word, that right there, the commentators will say, see, when you go to hell, you're, being, you're destroyed, man. That's it. No, Gehenna was another place. We've talked about that. But the destroy there means they're lost. That just, that's all it means. They have yet to be found. And always the implication that they're going to be found. So when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish He's saying God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe on him would not be lost, but have eternal life. There is the game plan. Who can be found? How can they not be lost so that they suffer? What happens when we get lost into things? And when will they be found is the implication when it comes to apulamy. So if apulamy meant destruction, we have all sorts of problems with it in the text but it doesn't. And yet most commentators, especially King James commentators, will talk about that fact or that idea of a fact. So being eternally lost would be a miserable state, of course. That's why we try to avoid that. But we don't lose track of the fact what destroyed, lost apulami means. Note that Paul's use of the Greek term apulami does not mean destroyed here. Then Paul adds the final point for today, and he says... Something significant in verse 19. 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ. So I'm sorry, but I would say this to Thomas Jefferson if he were in our group. I mean, not publicly, but I'd say, Tom, (laughs) you think Christ is a great guy, but you, you don't believe in all the other things about him. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of most, we are, we are of all men most miserable. If in this life only. Most miserable. The thinking here, I believe, that Paul is alluding to must include those key words. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. So what he's saying is, you guys at Corinth are wandering around with a belief in Christ. If you only have that belief in this life, relative to this life, you are the most miserable people on earth. Jesus proclaimed kind of an aesthetic, ascetic approach to living. He loved to party. I loved to be with friends, good wine, good food. But he didn't have a place to rest his head. He, he wasn't all about the luxuries of the world. And he told us, be patient with people who have great faults. Turn the other cheek when you're offended. Rejoice when you're maligned and when people, you know, uh, mistreat you. Do all these things while you're walking around in this life, in that day, you know, especially the material side of that day. And this approach is based over and over again on, on the idea, based in Scripture, that in this life, if we suffer for Christ, in the next life, there will be something better for us. Now, we don't like to admit that as Christians, but that is a tenet of Scripture. That in this life, the suffering for Christ, by the way, will amount to something there that's better. It's in almost every parable he tells. So, you know, we say, I don't want to do it for the rewards, but yet that is how a lot of the Scripture talks about you know, the parable of the, of, the, of, of the, uh, the poor guy with the sores and the dogs licking it and the other guy having the opulence and, and all that, you know. He's in Abraham's bosom afterward for the things he suffered. The other guy is in Hades, right? So over and over again, this is a driving principle of the faith. Die to your flesh here. Don't hit back. Forgive. Do the things Jesus tells us to. Live by the Spirit here. Lay up your treasures in heaven. It's a principle. Paul says that they who place their faith in Christ only here are above everybody the most miserable. And and that makes great sense. After all, if Jesus never rose from the grave, right, like he promised he would, then all the other promises and teachings of turning the other cheek and being forgiving and long-suffering and humble and everything else are hollow. You guys at Corinth are going around forgiving people and, you know, you, uh, you're doing all these Christian things, but at the end of the day, you're a fool. You're stupid. You're the most miserable humans on earth. I get this totally. It makes such sense. So even if turning the other cheek and forgiving others is the best human way to get through life. Let's say there's no God. The best human way to get through life is to be patient, long-suffering, kind, 
and turn the other cheek and forgive because it is the salve for, for society and we can all get along better. And so even if there is no God, this is what the atheists will say. And this is what my atheist friends will say. There's no God, but still I'm good just because it's the best way to live. I don't walk around with the pain in my heart of people I haven't forgiven. I'm not angry all the time, etc., etc. You see, and Paul says that at least in that day, if Christ didn't resurrect and that the faith was only for them, then they're really the most miserable of men. You see, the Jews hated them. And the Romans took sides against them. And the Gnostics hated them. And they were suffering and seeking for a spiritual kingdom beyond that they trusted in, right? And, uh, but Paul is saying, it's you're the most miserable people on earth, right? I have all, I've often told Mary, we watch gangster shows and stuff. Much to the chagrin of my atheist friends. They hate this. But I've said... You know, my atheist friends, and, and I do love them, but they, they do, some of them, do have this attitude, that man is noble, and they are, we are good, and we can make our decisions based off rationality, and therefore make our world a better place without God. Okay, that's their thinking. And maybe some of them can. But if I knew, if I knew there was no... God, Jesus, afterlife, resurrection, yada, yada, yada. Of course, God would have to tell me that, and therefore, <laughs> this wouldn't work. But if I knew there was no God, I would be the worst human being you had ever met. I would be a criminal of criminals, like the gangsters. I would organize all the bad seeds, and we would rule with might. Might makes right in my mind, right? Someone hurts me, they're going down. I, my flesh reacts that way still. And if I can't take them down, this will or they will. It makes no sense to me at all as a human being to praise the nobility of man. I don't see men as noble. I see them as opportunists and cowards and, and out for their own and you know, uh, hypocritical and with their mouths and what they say and do behind the back and all that. I, that's how I see the world. I'm sorry, I was born that way. Maybe my parents raised me that way, but that's how I see it. So to me, truly, I'm not going to be the most miserable of men if I find out there's no God. I'm going to live it up for myself and my own to the hilt. People don't like to say that because they want to think that in them there's something good and that they're good somehow in how they live their life, and therefore, without God, they would still be good. Well, I just want to say for the record, not me. <laughs> it just wouldn't be. So, I thank God. I thank God for showing me, in my spirit, what a rat bastard I really am, and how much I need him. Not just his life, not just his death, but his resurrection, to walk in that every day. Now, my atheist friends on a recording even said, well, that makes sense. If that works for you, then Christianity makes sense. It keeps the world a safer place. Okay, I'll agree with that then. But it's not just for this life that I do that. I do it for his kingdom and 
thinking that maybe there'll be something better for the suffering to the flesh that I naturally have on the other side than there is here. That's the thinking I have through Scripture. So, but I do thank God for the good news that says you are really a twisted individual when it comes to how you will operate in this world. Maybe God did come into my life as a means to protect people. I will give him that, but I'll follow that. But I'm not going to play a game of I'll embrace something so that, you know, uh, just to get along with it and be part of it and have it be absolutely void of truth. I did that with Mormonism, and that's why I was still a bad guy as a Mormon. Got it, the, the heart, the, it's the inward change begins inside. When you believe by faith that that dude rose and overcame sin and death and then overcame Satan and hell and all of that stuff and new life can be had in him here and there. So we live in an age when, where humans fancy themselves as enlightened and good. And I just think of Luther, what he said. Yeah, you know, people who start to think that, they can do that when they're around their friends and when times are really good, but let someone start picking at their scabs for a while and see how they relate to that treatment and how good they really, really think that they are. So most pitied is what Paul means in most miserable. You are to be the pitied of the most people. You Corinthians, you're saying there's no resurrection and you're enduring all this stuff? You're the most pitied people. So the Christian hope for eternal life would be dashed. They would be subject to trials and persecutions. They would suffer deprivations of income, deprivation of opportunities, deprivation of family, all for a myth. You are the most pitied people on the face of the earth, right? So I suppose that what Paul is saying here prompts me in some way to try to help people from believing in things that are making them the most miserable because, it's not, because they're not true. That's what launched me into perhaps going uh, after Mormons, Mormonism, not Mormons, because of all the time they're devoting to the practices and the temple endowments and the tithes and the home teaching and the family home evening and all of the stuff when the gospel is not about that and they spent so much of their life doing and suffering, all of that stuff only to be found to be the most miserable because it doesn't amount to anything. And so you're kind of like a freedom fighter when you're out sharing with someone who's trapped in that. You're like, you can be free and know Christ in his resurrection that says you don't need to go back into a temple. You don't need to pay the tithes. You don't need to dress this way. You can live your life. Just walk in him. He'll show you how to do it, right? So there's something about emancipation from bondage that's in this message of his resurrection. And if you value freedom in, in your life and in other people's lives, that's one of the reasons you share Jesus, is to free people who are trapped in religion, but more importantly, who are trapped in their own sin, their own mind, that, of what they need to do to make God happy. So, after having set the stage for Jesus being resurrected, and now what it would look like if he hadn't been, uh, Paul comes right back strongly. And I'm going to finish off right now just reading about eight verses. But now, he says at verse 20, is Christ risen from the dead? 
and become the first fruits of them that slept. And since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all enemies under his feet. But when he says all enemies are put under his feet, it's manifestly true that he is exempted from this, which did put all things under his feet. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And we'll pick up those verses next week. Comments, questions, insights, thoughts, heresies, Christmas wishes, nothing. Right on. Anybody on the prayer list? All right, I'll just make up some problems. I'm going to wait for you. Oh, Danny, I'm sorry. I didn't see you. That's okay. I, I'm sorry. I, don't, I just thought um, it's so great that you're uh, continuing to repeat the message the last few weeks. It's finally really sinking in about um, all of us being dead uh, in Christ, but some of us rising to live with Christ in us, and I get the picture now, and I see people now differently. I have, I have in the past recently seen people, now that I understand the truth, that we, that these people, are their sins are all paid for. Mm -hmm. The good news is you just have to tell them that, that accept the truth, accept Christ, and they can enjoy this freedom and uh, be free from the bondage of religion. It's sad for me to see people, even those who believe in, in another philosophy or another school of thought about uh, some only some are elect and chosen and the rest of them are going to be annihilated or yeah. they'll perish uh, with the wrong definition forever yeah. and banished to hell in fire. And that is not good news to no. me. That is sad that people... One last comment is that I am so impressed with Paul. I mean, someone who was so convinced in his own mind as a zealot for, you know, for the Jewish faith that he persecuted and put people to death. And you know, we have some writings of John and Peter and, and um, James, but Paul really lays it out. I mean, for someone to um, explain it the way he does, it, particularly here in this chapter, is just truly a blessing to all of us. I agree, Danny. Thank you so much for those comments. They mean a lot. It's so true with what Paul has done and given to us in the name of Christ. Okay. Nope. All right. Let's pray. Lord, busy, hectic season, season, season on this earth, and um, we're in the midst of it, uh, at least in the U.S., and, you know, we can be troubled and beset by the traffic and the shopping and the stuff we have to do just because it's part of the culture. 
And so we pray that uh, your spirit will be with us as we sojourn through this time, that we'll appreciate the, the goodness of the season, the refreshness, the, the refreshing spirit that comes when we think about uh, the, what we're thinking and doing here, and that we're rejoicing that you loved us so much, you gave us your only human son to do what he did. And, and Lord, we just, uh, we bow and worship over the fact that you loved us and you gave us your son who took upon himself the sin and then, because of his righteousness, rose from that grave for us. And he did it as a symbol and as a type and as a picture and as a reality for the Christian walk. So we pray that we'll be able to walk in the newness of that spirit this week and in the weeks to come. And we'll be refreshed even though around us is chaos. And we'll be able to keep a light touch on the things of this world and keep a heavy touch on the people around us who we love and you've given to us as gifts and who are important to us and who mean something. And then to those who don't and help us to walk as Christ and reach out to those like Danny pointed out who uh, don't know the good news, the great news, and need to receive that, to be able to have that new life and walk in Him. We pray for those who are having such troubles and difficulty. Our friend Lisa, the cancer's returned to her spine, and um, so we pray for her and, and her healing. We pray for Gracie's family as they've lost this child during the holiday season, and we pray that you'll sustain them, make yourself known, and all the other people, so many struggles physically and emotionally and spiritually in this world. That will be those lights that you want us to shine, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And we, we pray that you'll let us shine to people in this love that you have for them, this deep abiding love you have uh, for your creations. And help us, use us to help them to become your children, adopted into your house, uh, by and through faith on your son. So we seek this, Lord, and we, uh, we praise you from our hearts with Mia's voice. In Jesus' name, amen. For my young.